Well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. Next week is our graduation Sunday. Uh, we're going to celebrate all of our graduates. And so if you have not let Chrissy know in the office uh, about whatever you're doing as part of that celebration, uh, we would love to know and be able to celebrate with you um, let us know about any open houses or parties you want your church family to be invited to. Uh, just word of encouragement, y'all are invited to our house uh, next Saturday from 1 to 4. We'll be having a little gathering over at our place and uh, celebrating Sarah and her graduation from, from uh, high school and headed off to college at Taylor University in the fall. So that's going to be a, a fun time, and y'all are invited. You're all welcome. We hope that we uh, uh, cause trouble for all of our neighbors and where to park their car. And so, um, but please come. We'll enjoy having you there and uh, getting to celebrate uh, Sarah's accomplishment. But if you have an eighth grade student, a college student, um, a, uh, a, high, a high school graduate, uh, make sure you let the office know. Send an email to office at chilibible.org and uh, make sure that we know. We don't want to overlook anybody. So, uh, make sure that we know what's going on. I want to pray for a couple things before we get started. First, I want to pray for our time in the Word. But in addition to that, um, uh, our friend Marty Davis uh, came to me this morning and let me know that he has lost the sight in his right eye, which is the eye that he could see out of. And so he is really, really struggling. He's going to be going to the VA tomorrow to see what they can do to perhaps restore the sight that he had in that eye. We need to pray for him. We also need to pray for our sister, uh, Becky Davis. She's here with us. I mean, Becky Keedy. Sorry, Becky, not Becky Davis. Becky is Marty's wife. Um, Becky Keedy, and, um, and that is, Becky is here with us this morning. We need to continue to lift her up in prayer. So let's pray for these things. Go before the Lord. Uh, he is a big God, capable of big things. And so let's, let's pray together. God, our Heavenly Father, we do pray this morning. As, as we come to you, Father, as we open your word together, we pray that, that you would speak to us in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand what it is you want us to know. and Help us to... Um, have our hearts transformed and feel the way that you want us to feel and to put into action the things that you want us to do. Father, we know that, that we, um, though we are redeemed, if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, our sin gets in the way of being the kind of people that you want us to be. And so, Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to to work in our hearts and to transform us uh, into those people that you have designed and called us to, to become. And Father, I lift up Marty this morning to you. Uh, Father, we need a miracle. And we're asking, Father, that you would restore his sight, that, um, that he would be able to stand in front of your people next, next week and be able to give you praise for what you've done in his life and father we also lift up becky 
this morning we ask uh, for her healing. And we ask, Father, that this cancer, though um, doctors say that it has progressed, uh, would actually unwind and would would uh, go back the other direction and would and that she would be healed and that she would likewise be able to give you praise for what you have done in her life. And Father, we ask these things in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, one of the things I enjoyed during my time overseas here recently was getting to attend a worship service uh, with, that was absolutely packed with kids. Uh, I was able to share a little bit with some folks last night about that trip, and I told them that the room that we had, I think, was about, I don't know, maybe 12 by 20, something like that, and there were 80-some children in that room. Uh, Every place that was not occupied by one of a dozen adults was occupied by kids, And, and literally, there were kids from right at the end of the toes of my shoes all the way through the room. And, uh, and so you can't move, you can't go anywhere, uh, but the kids are all singing uh, as we get started with the worship service. And because uh, one of the, the guys there knew some English and they're teaching some of the kids some English, they decided they would sing a song that I could sing along with. I was, and... Uh, and so they sang the children's song, My God is So Big. You know this song? My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do, right? Now, I'll just tell you, you guys outnumber those kids by about twice, but they sing louder than you by about twice, <laughs> okay? Because they are screaming the lyrics to this song because apparently praising the Lord is measured with enthusiasm and volume, right? And, uh, and so they're shouting out the lyrics of this song and I sang right along with them because I enjoy it and I, I just had so much fun with these kids. We all did the motions together. My God, it's so big. You know, and and uh, it was so great. You know, we had so much fun. Um, and I was thinking about doing that with those kids as I was studying this portion of John chapter 12 that we're going to look at today. Because in it, what we're going to see is a picture of God that is very much like that children's song. That God is so big and so strong and so mighty that there is nothing God cannot do. Or to put it in more distinctly adult terms, Jesus presents to us a picture of God and His sovereign power that very well might, and probably should if it doesn't, blow your mind. Because as I was studying this passage this week, it caused me to sit back in awe and wonder at God's sovereign plan and how He caused it to come about. And I hope that by the time that we are finished in our study today, that you have an expanded view of how big and how mighty God truly is. And so I want to look at the text with you. We're going to be in uh, John chapter 12, John's Gospel, chapter 12, uh, beginning at the end of verse 36. 
And continuing to the end of the chapter, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 36, um, the, the second section of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now let me ask you a question here as we open up this text. Why did most of the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day reject Jesus as Messiah? I want you to think about it for a second. Was it because Jesus provided insufficient evidence that he was the Messiah? No. Do you think that perhaps if he had done one more, maybe, dramatic miracle, that the Jewish leaders would have turned toward Jesus in faith? No, that wasn't it. He had provided abundant dramatic miracles. No one had ever heard since the days of Elijah of a man being healed of leprosy. Jesus healed ten guys all at one time. Jesus could raise the dead and did so on three occasions. Jesus could heal the sick. Jesus could cast out demons at a word. Jesus could walk on water. Jesus could multiply a small amount of food into sufficient food to feed thousands of people and did it twice. Was there just lack of evidence? Was there just not enough miracles maybe? Was it because Jesus didn't fit their notions of what Messiah and King should be? Well, that's, that's closer. That's closer to the truth. But let me ask you another question about that. Why? Why wasn't Jesus the kind of Messiah they were looking for? Because the truth that Jesus would suffer as well as reign, that the Messiah would suffer as well as reign, was not written in some obscure corner of the, of the Old Testament. In fact, it's sprinkled throughout the Old Testament prophets that Messiah would not only reign, but also suffer. In fact, it's written in one of the most prominent books of the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is the longest book in the Old Testament. And it's one that every Jewish leader, every Jewish person would have known well. So this is not a hidden thing. Are you ready for an answer that John gives? This is John's answer. An answer that might very well blow your mind. Would you believe that their rejection of Jesus and their decision to put Jesus to death 
was part of God's sovereign plan from the beginning. In other words, their rejection is not an accident that God has to adapt to. It isn't something that He has to, has to go, hmm, well, I didn't know that was going to happen. I guess we'll have to make the most of this, the best of this, what we can, and try and salvage somehow what we had planned for Jesus out of this. No, what the Bible makes clear is that Jesus' rejection and His subsequent to that death was part of God's plan, in fact, before the world was made. Before there was an Adam and Eve, before there was a creation, before there was a first sin, there was already a plan for a Savior. Does that blow your mind? It blows mine. This is an amazing, amazing thing. Look at the text here with me. The last part of verse 36 says that Jesus went and hid, went away, hid himself from the Jewish leaders. Why? It's because, verse 37 tells us, they did not believe in him despite all the signs he had done. Well, why didn't they believe in him? Look at verse 38. It tells you, so that, circle those two words. That's giving, about to give you a reason. So that the word spoken to the, by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In other words, God has planned this. God has planned for the rejection of His Son. It's so that the words that God spoke through the prophet Isaiah to the nation of Israel would be fulfilled. In verse 38 here, as you look at it, John is quoting Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. If you know your Bible, you know Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant song. It's the one that describes how Jesus is going to be crushed and bruised and beaten and killed, not for what He did, but for what other people did how it was God's plan to crush him, to save us from sin. And John is saying, in order for that to happen, then Jesus' rejection has to happen first. And that this is part of God's plan. So Jesus' rejection by the religious leaders is not some cosmic accident. It's something God had in mind from long before Jesus was born. In fact, if you read your Bible, if you read Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, I'm not going to turn there. I'm just going to tell you what it says. That the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. That in other words, it was always God's plan that a Messiah would come to save people who He knew would fall into sin and fall away from Him to send a Savior for them. And in order for that to transpire, Jesus has to be rejected by His own people and by His own religious leaders who should have recognized Him because they had the same Bible that you have with the same book of Isaiah in it and were able to read it 
and understand it and see it. And that's what verse 39 sums up. This is, this is again, this is going to blow your mind. It says, therefore, drawing a conclusion, they, underline these words, could not believe. Not, did not, not would not, could not believe. God was ensuring that they did not believe. Because it was in their rejection that salvation came. Because Jesus had to die. If there's no crucifixion, there's no resurrection and redemption. Amen? And so God ensured that they would not believe in Jesus and would put him to death instead. They could not believe because, as the Scripture says, God had not revealed himself to them. Look at, the, look at, your, look at your Bible there, verse 40. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. That's, by the way, a quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is this great passage. Uh, if you remember, it's the call of Isaiah. And it makes for some amazing reading if you look at it. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. And the train of His robe filled the temple. He says, And I saw, I saw seraphs, which means burning ones, these fiery angels surrounding the throne of God. And they had six wings flying through the air. They had two that they flew with and two they covered their faces with and two they covered their feet with. And they cried out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the gates of the temple were shaken. I don't know how loud you can shout. It's probably not loud enough to shake a building, right? But these angels, when they shout, the temple was shaken. And Isaiah is overwhelmed by the glory of God, and he cries out, Woe is me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King. One of these angels grabs a coal from the altar and purifies Isaiah's lips, burns away his sin so that he can stand in the presence of God. And then God issues this great call. He says, who shall we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah receives his call and God sends him out. And this is the call that he gives him. You're going to go out and you're going to preach and everyone will reject your message. Everyone will reject your message. That's why it begins, who has believed what he's heard from us? That's, that's chapter 53. God says, look, I'm going to blind their, I'm going to blind their eyes. I'm going to harden their hearts. Why? Because... The nation is going to destruction and you're going to preach and no one will listen. By the way, is that an encouraging, uh, encouraging commission, right? You're going to see this great demonstration of God's power and glory. And by the way, none of your people will listen to you. 
right? I can tell you that if you're a preacher of God's word, that is not the word you're hoping for. You're hoping for Jonah, right? Jonah goes and preaches in Nineveh. He doesn't even tell everybody in town, but everybody in town repents and believes immediately in response to what he said, right? Now, Jonah had the wrong attitude in response to that, but that's the results you're hoping for. Isaiah is told, no, you're going to preach, and the people are going to not believe. They're going to go into exile. And Isaiah cries out, how long, O Lord? And the point of this is this. That John is telling us that Jesus' rejection is the continuing fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Well, he will further harden those who are already hardened so that they do not believe and repent. Now, this is, this is amazing to me. I've got to tell you, I was scratching my head a little bit. In my study this week as I read this, they could not repent. God's going to harden people. What is that? What are the reasons why the people who rejected Jesus did so? There's one reason given in verse 38. Because God had not chosen to reveal himself to them in a saving way. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God did not make it clear to them that Jesus was the Messiah. And by the way, let me just explain that a little bit. Okay? When a person comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, how does that happen? God intervenes in their life and gives them the ability to believe. Because apart from that, they naturally reject the idea that they are a sinner in need of salvation. And so God has to reveal Himself in a mighty way for them to come to faith. In fact, if you read Ephesians chapter 2, it says that even the faith by which we believe is a gift of God. How about that? So God has to intervene. And God hadn't intervened in these people's lives, at least not yet. And Secondly, because God had instead chosen to fulfill His own purposes in hardening them in their unbelief. Now, I have to confess, I don't completely understand these things. But here's what I do understand. That God is not unjust because He saves some people and not others. Because according to justice... All of us are sinners who deserve death. So if God saves even one of us, he has been gracious beyond anything that we deserve as people who've rebelled against him. And God also doesn't just save just one of us. Amen? He saves literally billions of people. Billions of people from every tribe and nation and language and and group around the world right and so if you look closely at the rest of Isaiah's prophecy in in Isaiah 6 you'll read there God's promise that his hardening of his people is both necessary as well as temporary that it has an end until his judgment of sin is complete 
And the same thing is true here. In fact, if you look at verses 41 to 43, flip over there if you're not there yet. You'll see that John says that Isaiah is writing about Jesus. But you'll also see that many people, even among the leaders, actually did believe in Jesus, but are afraid to say so because they liked human glory rather than God's glory. And I think we meet some of them in Acts chapter 2. In other words, this is necessary in order for Jesus to die, but it's also temporary so that salvation can come through the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, you read Peter's great sermon that he gives on the day of Pentecost. Do you remember this? He stands and he tells the people in the temple. So by the way, who are some of the people who are in the audience? These religious leaders. And he says, you, talk about boldness, you put to death the king of glory with the help of wicked men. And it says that that day about 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus, including many of the elders and religious leaders. Think about that. Some of the very people whom God had hardened to ensure that they did not come to faith in Jesus prior to Jesus' death are the very ones. They're among the same group of people who come to faith in Jesus after His death. Does that blow your mind? That some of the same people who are responsible for literally condemning Jesus to death are among the people Jesus includes in His kingdom after His death. How about that? Is your mind blown yet? Mine is. This is incredible what God is telling us here. And if this passage isn't amazing enough, look at the rest of the chapter here beginning verse 44 and Jesus cried out and said whoever believes in me believes not in me but in the one who sent me and whoever sees me sees him who sent me I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness if anyone hears my words and does not keep them I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let me ask you another question. Why did Jesus come? Was it to bring God's judgment on the world? No. It was was to receive God's judgment on the world on His own shoulders. Jesus makes it really clear. Verse 37, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. How is that going to be achieved? How are people... To be saved. It's through faith in Jesus. Simple, right? But look closely at what Jesus says in verse 44 to 46. Whoever believes in me, 
believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. According to Jesus, in other words, if you believe in him, you are believing in the one who sent him. That's God the Father. And if you see Jesus for who He really is, then you are seeing God, the Father, as He really is too. And if you have faith in Jesus, you are seeing God. Think about that. That to see Jesus is to see God for who He really is. On top of that, Jesus is the light, and whoever believes in him won't remain in the darkness of sin and under its penalties of death and hell. You ready for another mind-blowing moment? Who ensured Jesus' rejection? The Father. Who's the one who hardened the Jews of Jesus' day to ensure that Jesus would be put to death? The Father. Who declared all these things through the prophet Isaiah and ensured that Isaiah's prophecy got fulfilled in Jesus, the Father? Now look at verse 44. Who sent Jesus into the world to bring light and salvation? The Father. How, in other words, did salvation come through Jesus' foreordained, sovereignly planned rejection and death. In other words, if Jesus had not been rejected and killed according to God's plan, there would have been no salvation. Sometimes you and I, from our little perspective, look at God's plans and say in our hearts, well, how can a loving God harden people in their unbelief? How can that happen? The answer is that God in His justice and sovereignty has, if He hadn't hardened their already sinful hearts, His loving heart could not have accomplished salvation for those who believe in Jesus. God's hardening of people in their sinful rejection is precisely what made salvation available. And notice that God's sovereign plan does not make us any less culpable for our sin, our rejection of the salvation He freely offers to everyone who believes in Jesus. If you look at verse 47, He says that many people will hear the Word, and some will not receive Him, but He doesn't judge them. Instead, the word that they heard will be their judge on the last day because Jesus is not telling them anything on his own. He is simply repeating what the Father gave him to say and do. Which seems to make it clear that we have to hold two truths together that seem paradoxical, but that are both true. That God is sovereign and his will is going to be accomplished sometimes because of people's rejection of Jesus. And at the same time, people are responsible if they choose to reject Jesus' word to them and the offer of salvation. He came to suffer rejection and death to give them. 
You have to hold both of those things together. Now, there are a few things I want to highlight for us from this passage again. First of all, there's something that we need to know. We read this. If you're just a little bit confused, that's okay. Because understanding God's sovereignty from our little finite perspective is a little bit confusing. I don't want you to be really confused. Hopefully you're not. But you need to know this, that God is big. He is far, far bigger than we imagine. And His sovereign plan is far beyond our small understanding. God is the author of salvation, and He brings it about according to His plans and purposes in ways that we did not expect and we don't fully understand. So if you understand nothing else, understand that, know that. God is big and His sovereign plans include things that we have a hard time understanding. But it isn't because God is so incomprehensible. It's that He is so amazing that our finite minds can't get our arms... We just can't get our... Our, our arms and our minds to wrap around it. We can't. We don't see things from his perspective. But there's also something we need to experience in this text, if we haven't, and that is we need to trust in Jesus. Because all of this plan that God had from eternity past came together to bring about one result, which is the salvation of the world through faith in Jesus. And so if you have never done that, men and women, boys and girls, all of you, my beloved people, if you've never put your trust in Jesus, this is what this passage is presenting before you. is something you need to experience. You need to put your trust in Jesus Christ who came to suffer rejection and death to offer salvation freely as a gift to you. Freely as a gift. It was very costly for Jesus to achieve and to offer, but it is free for you to receive. And if you've never received it, today is the day to put your trust in Jesus Christ. And then something also we need to do, and that is to go public with your faith in Jesus Christ. You see these guys at the end of, uh, of verse 42, 43, says that there were some who believed in Jesus, they were believers in secret. And they were kind of, you know, I'm going to believe in Jesus on the down low because I don't want anybody to know. I don't want to pay any cost. I don't want to I don't want to have anybody throw me out of the synagogue. I want to have everything in my life be the same because I like human glory better than I like glorifying God. Y'all, these people are not included in this text because they are great examples of what Jesus wants us to do. Can I just say that? They are here because 
John is highlighting their cowardice in doing the opposite of what God expects of them. Christianity is a public faith. It is a public testimony that you make. In fact, from the very beginning, amen, what do we do? As soon as somebody comes to faith in Jesus, we stand them up in public and we have them give public testimony of their faith in Jesus and then we publicly baptize them in His name. Why? Because it's, honestly, it's because it's their it's not only the sign uh, to them uh, on the outside of what, it, what Jesus has done to them on the inside, it's also designed to be the time when you go on record in front of everybody that this is who I am, where you stand up, as it were, and be counted for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's your first act of evangelism, is to tell people, I know Jesus, and this is how it happened. And I'm going on record that I'm putting myself down with Him. I'm so grateful He'll have me. You know, it's like kind of the, the reverse of Groucho Marx, right? You know, Groucho said that he never wanted to belong to any club that would let someone like him in as a member. Right? <laughs> okay. You know, in Christianity, we have the magnificent glory of the reality that God Himself wants us as members of His family. And out of gratitude for that, we give public testimony that God let someone like me in. Can you believe that? Okay. I can't believe that. I mean, every day I wake up surprised by the grace of God <laughs> that He would be gracious to the likes of me. I wake up even more surprised on behalf of you. Right? That He would be gracious to you is really incredible. Right? Because <laughs> um, I know some of you. Right? <laughs> but, uh, but isn't that amazing? That God, in His grace, would allow the likes of us into His family. And not just let us in like because He tolerates us, but welcome us in because He loves us. It's an amazing thing. And so, and so Christianity is meant to be a public thing that we celebrate the reality of what God has done for us in His grace and that we go on record with everybody we know. And if there are costs, so be it. Because I already got the lottery of life that I won because God let me into His family as His child. So what can happen to me? What can anybody do to me? They're going to put me out of the synagogue? Okay, big deal. I'm going to lose my job? i got an, in an inheritance in heaven of the king of creation. If you are not willing yet to go on record with your faith, today needs to be the day that marks a change in that too. That the people that you work with and know, and I'm not saying be obnoxious. Don't hear me say that. But the people you work with and know, the people in your family, the people in your, that are your classmates, the people that are your neighbors, ought to not only see a difference in your life since you met Jesus, they ought to hear the reason why. Amen? They ought to hear the reason why. 
that we not just believe in Jesus, not just live for Jesus, but we also proclaim Jesus to everybody we know. Not out of obligation, but out of gratitude. But like I say, we can't believe that the likes of us got in. And yet here we are, behind the velvet rope, welcomed and received as children of God. How about that? Are you fearful about going on record? Do you love human praise more than God's glory? If you do, repent. Confess your sin to God. Receive His forgiveness.